The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight, and a big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. Shelley, over here, some of you know Shelley Graff, our associate director and one of our staff teachers. She and I were leading a residential retreat this last weekend, and there's just something about being with a group of people, this one just for three days, and uh, doing our practice together that really inspiring and enlivening. So uh, um, I was talking to Shelley earlier today about, some of you know, and are reading Guy Armstrong's new book, Emptiness, A Practical Guide for Meditators. If you want to get a copy, it's just a complimentary text to some of the talks that I and other teachers are giving <clears throat> probably through most of the winter. And you can pick it up at Moon Palace Books, a nice independent bookstore just south of here, about seven blocks on Minnehaha Avenue. Let them know you're from Common Ground. They'll give you 20% off. We thought maybe we'd go right to the very end, right? Because some of you have been around. You know that the teachings, the Buddhist teachings on emptiness are very provocative, right? To cultivate a stability of awareness steadiness, continuity of awareness, present moment awareness, so the mind begins to recognize that this moment, any moment, all the moments in the past, all the moments right here, now, future, that the moment is empty of anything but this being known. Of course, the moment, because of our conventional way of relating to the experience of the body-mind, it always seems like there's something very rich and complicated and heavy, like me, that's here. But the fact remains, when we're honest and we've trained the mind to be somewhat stable, that what the mind, what the knowing, the wisdom in the mind finds is this experience, this feeling, this sight, this sound, this sensation, this thought is being known. And it finds that this moment is always empty of anything other than something being known. And as this dawns on the mind, usually gradually, but sometimes people get a a real gulp, a real powerful insight, life-changing insight, but generally it's a gradual waking up to this insight. It's quite transforming. So this last chapter in the book is this intersection of compassion, or we could say, because compassion really implies action, engagement, right? So compassionate action, compassionate engagement, and emptiness. And how they really, I mean, there's really no compassionate action without emptiness. From a self point of view, my mind, my heart, this life governed by self-centered activity, all my dramas like wanting to be seen as a compassionate human being or thinking I should be compassionate because that's what my mommy told me, or, you know, whatever. Then, well, that's not compassion. That's some kind of neurotic activity trying to live up to some idea that we have in the mind. 
you know, the way the Buddha frames our experience is that <clears throat> can we understand, can we look, can we open to our experience and see it as a movement of nature? So when you notice a more um, authentic, a more spontaneous, natural, organic movement of compassion in your life, can you see it as a natural movement of causes and conditions? Because when you do, then that compassion has a real power. One image I really like in this regard, some of you know, being Minnesotans, some of you, you know, when the lakes freeze or even the water in the ground freezes, right, we get these frost heaves. And if you go to some of the roads that, you know, not the major highways, but some of the smaller roads where they didn't put a lot of gravel before they put the road, then when the frost, when that water in the ground freezes, well, ice expands. And the moment that it goes from liquid to solid ice, it gets a little bit bigger. And that movement from, you know, being a certain size as liquid to being a certain size when it's ice there's nothing that can stop that movement, right? And that's why you get the heaves. So it, it will just lift up. Like if you go walking, like I do sometimes in the woods in the wintertime, you'll see these frost heaves, like just little cracks, maybe six inches, five inches. The path just lifts up because there was some water underneath there. And then as it expanded, the earth needed to move to make room for the extra space. So this, simp- this is why ice floats, by the way. Most of you know this, but in case you don't. <laughs> right? Because it's less dense than the water, than the liquid water. So think of this the same way, like when there's emptiness, when the mind isn't imagining there's something more here than is here, right? It's just this being known. That mind, that heart, has no defenses. So we'd say it's undefended. It's open. It's extremely sensitive. It sees and feels everything because what would be in the way, right? The mind isn't distracted with neurotic activity, like wanting to be compassionate. I mean, there's more neurotic activities than that, but like even a relatively wholesome neurotic activity, wanting to be seen as compassionate, Well, when the mind is just something being known, something being known, something being known, in that real simplicity, that mind is really sensitive. So what happens when a sensitive heart, an open, vulnerable, clear, simple mind, heart, sees suffering, our own suffering or the suffering of another? I mean, we actually know this experience, at least to some degree walking along a path, or as I've noticed sometimes on retreat. I remember once in particular up at Arrow River, this really wonderful little hermitage place just across the Minnesota border on the way to Thunder Bay that Ajahn Punadama runs. He's a Buddhist monk, Canadian Buddhist monk, who comes to teach at Common Ground once a year. And they have some cabins for practitioners to use. So I was just walking back and forth, in this little cabin out in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, really. And this beautiful little bird, kind of bird I'd never seen before, just 
flew right at the window, crashed right into the window, and fell. And so every time I got to the end of my walking path inside, I could look out the window and down, and I could see it just lying, you know. And just that, because my mind was simple, mostly present, right? There was, the impact is so strong. Like a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to practice and I'm going to get really equanimous and then I'll be able to read the news without being pushed around and I'll be able to be in a relationship without being so sensitive and I'll be able to see the injustice in the world without you know, freaking out. But actually, it's just the opposite. We become more and more sensitive. We feel more deeply. We see more deeply. We see more clearly and we feel more deeply what it is to be touched, what it is to experience joy and sorrow. But the difference is, with the development of wisdom, the heart knows how to feel that feeling. In a sense, how to be peaceful, non-reactive with that feeling. That's our training. And it's not about accepting or not about not doing anything, it's about understanding that in this moment it feels like this, seeing the dead bird or hearing about an injustice. It feels like this, it lands like this. And we don't imagine that there's somebody that can't feel it or that somehow it's destructive to feel what we feel. And this is both true for the joy, the beauty that we experience in life, and the sorrow. And even the uh, strong, fierce movement, this is not okay. But there's a willingness to feel what it feels like. And see, then the action, the movement of the heart, what we call compassion, right? It's a movement from having let it in not be afraid to feel what we feel. That's exactly what allows that natural movement, like water turning to ice. Nothing can stop that movement of compassion because it's not grounded in fear, self-fear, or self-promotion. It's not about self. And that's really this intersection of emptiness and compassion. Now, I don't know, I'm not, and I'm imagining most of us are not fully enlightened, awake beings, you know, fully, always not confused by the sense that my experience does, in fact, refer back to me, right? And therefore, because we have this sense that my life, the activity of my life, refers back to me, then we neurotically want to defend that sense of the me that's back there or somewhere that owns this, is this. And then most of our life is filled with this neurotic activity of fitting in, being liked, not liking, wanting this, wanting to become. And there's basically no room for compassion, no capacity for compassion. And even when in some outward way our actions look compassionate, often, even though people might think, we're being really compassionate, 
often it's, it's tainted with our own drama, whatever it is. Right? It's weakened or limited by fear and greed and, and the other sort of natural expressions of living out of this self-centered box, this idea that there's a frightened me, a needy me at the center of things. I've been using, I forget if it was in this, uh, in the weekly practice groups, but I think it was in the Buddhist studies class on Monday night. I've been using this passage from John Wellwood that I saw in something that Chaz the Kapua wrote, he's one of the he's the one of the resident teachers at Insight Meditation Society, and he does come to Minnesota to teach most winters. He'll be back this winter teaching the TCVC retreat. And this quote from John Wellwood, who's a Buddhist psychologist, says, "We are not just humans learning to become Buddha, but we are also Buddhas waking up in human form." learning to become fully human. So there is this, right, we're Buddhas, that means nature, right? That's what this is, this activity of the body and the mind that we in conventional terms say is me or mine. Actually, we're training the mind to see it, to be with it as a organic movement of causes and conditions or nature. Not different than other nature, not different than ice melting and becoming water or ice freezing and becoming ice or water freezing and becoming ice. Not different than any other movement in nature, causes and conditions interdependently expressing themselves as whatever's next, always unfolding, one thing leading to the next, right? And as a living being, as a force of nature, there is this present moment input, right? Like how my mind views what's unfolding right now, that's also part of nature, and it affects the unfolding of nature, right? So this is one way to understand how emptiness, the Buddhist teachings on emptiness, that it's just this being known, it's just this interdependent unfolding of causes and conditions, how it's not some empty deterministic process. So like, why bother? If it's all empty, why bother? What can be done? But one of the things we see directly in our lives is, yeah, okay, so it's nature, but part of nature is how my mind is relating to nature right now, right? To what's coming and going, to what's moving in the body, moving around me, moving in my heart and mind. And then one more piece is what the mind is making of this, like how the mind is relating, with what kind of understanding or view am I showing up, what kind of meaning is my mind making. That's why it's a powerful intervention, like in terms of how things unfold for us in the world. It's a very powerful intervention to realize, like to add to what's happening in this moment, this understanding, oh, it's just this being known.
right? what we call a moment of being mindfully aware, right? where the mind, the heart opens and is willing to be with what's here and now, understanding this is here and now. This is being known. It's safe to be intimate. It's safe to be feeling what it feels like, this river of one thing followed by the next, followed by the next. Or there's another way I could be relating to this, like really neurotically, like I don't like what's showing up, what I'm feeling, what's happening, or I really like it and I want it to last, or I don't care. And it's the same, it's not just our own sort of experience of the body-mind, but just us being in the world, same thing. How we relate, the kind of meaning we create, really matters. So I wanted to bring that up because in order to understand, to really understand how compassion moves, it needs, it has an ingredient, their approximate cause for compassion. And the approximate cause for compassion to move is emptiness or freedom, or wisdom, or seeing things as they are. Like they say in the Buddhist tradition, you know, our teachers before us, in the tradition they say that the proximate cause, the necessary cause for generosity, natural, authentic generosity, is to feel like there's something to give. Like the other side of that would be what is the proximate cause for stinginess? Thinking that I don't have enough. Right? When we f- believe that thought that the mind creates, I don't have enough, then we're going to be stingy. But when we're feeling really whole and alive and free, loving, well then, like one of the words we use for this natural kind of love or compassion that's there when the mind is empty of self-centered drama, we call it boundless or immeasurable, right? And so it's like this infinite treasure, right? When our, you know, we all know this. I mean, unfortunately, we don't experience it all the time, but most human beings bump into this natural generosity of the heart. You know, maybe it's when you see two squirrels chasing each other around a tree and your heart just delights in it. Or whatever it is that opens your heart, you see somebody acting in a really beautiful way and it just moves your heart. And then it's contagious. Your heart feels really generous in that way. Like you have a lot to give. And it isn't, you know, we always think, oh, I don't have that much money. But that's such a limited idea of generosity, like can I give somebody some money? It's really about a way of being. So in the same way that generosity, real generosity, depends on feeling generous, feeling like there's a lot to give, compassion depends on that, like being touched, being sensitive. Some of you know of this practice in the Tibetan tradition called Tonglin. It's pretty well known in that tradition where you practice breathing in all the suffering. I mean, you build up to this. And then you give everything away, you know, you know, symbolically and emotionally, like all your safety. You just give it away. 
all your comfort, you give it away where there is a need for comfort. Safety, you give it away where there's a need for more safety. And you take in and you give away. And it's really a practice of emptiness because from that normal, more conventional, self-centered, stingy, fearful way of being in the world, we're not going to take in the suffering. We just can't do it. We can pretend to do it, but that's stinky, right? You know, it's like trying to be compassionate or trying to be kind. Or I used to work with children in the public schools as a behavior specialist. And uh, (laughs) it's always like such a, a false thing to sort of get kids to say they're sorry. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can't go out to recess. I mean, that wasn't me necessarily. I, I learned that lesson pretty quickly. <laughs> but, you know, I'd get called in, you know, and, and the teacher, the classroom teacher would say, you know, so da 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 happened, and this person needs to say they're sorry, you know. And then they have to kind of take care of the class. So then I'm left with the situation, you know, to kind of resolve it. And how to how to make that real, right? And so it's a long process. I mean, in that setting, we're basically doing the same thing we're doing in this setting as as an adult. We're learning to be empathic. Like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to be this other person? Right? Now, to some degree, having some senses of what it feels like, what do you want to say to them? What feels like the right thing to say now that you have some sense. Well, that's what we're doing in our practice. We're stripping everything away. We're stripping away all of our defenses, which aren't really there as we imagine them to be there anyway. We're making the mind, the heart, really simple. It's just this being known. And in that simplicity, we find that the heart is really sensitive, feels everything. It seems completely overwhelming how sensitive the heart becomes. Somebody at the end of the retreat, we have a closing circle, just talked about this movement, sort of sobbing in the middle of the meditation this morning, you know, in a way that was really unusual for this person. Just image after image came to his mind, and it just touched that open, raw, sensitive heart. And you know, it actually feels really good to be touched, not always by sorrow, but also by the joys and the beauty. This, I think, what he was sharing was mostly that end of the equation. Everything is moving. You know, seeing the few leaves left on a tree, seeing the squirrels, out there, you know, seeing somebody walking. As I drove into town, you know, there was somebody, an older person carrying two bags of groceries walking up 27th Avenue, wrapped in, uh, you know, in their garb that didn't seem very warm for a Minnesota winter. This looked like a recent immigrant, you know, and, uh, you know, just looking cold, at least from my perspective. And, it, and just sort of being touched by just life, 
of what that means. You know, people doing what they have to do, doing the next thing. And these simple things can be either another way we close down, another way we remain superficial or don't let our heart be touched. The same thing now, you know, just noticing the people in the room or noticing that there's a body here that feels like this or there's a heart here that feels like this. Are we letting life in? Are we practicing keeping it out? And whenever we let it in, something begins to move. Something that you're not doing, I'm not doing, something just happens. We call it the movement of love, the movement of compassion. It's just waiting for the proximate cause, a moment of being relatively empty of neurotic activity. When the mind is relatively empty of neurotic activity, the heart is vulnerable, the heart is raw, the heart is open, the heart feels. It feels like what it feels like to be a human being. It feels what it feels like to see and hear what we're seeing and hearing in this moment. And the heart responds. And there's nobody, there's nothing that can stop the heart from responding unless you take away the proximate cause and you get lost in thought, get caught up in our reactive patterns. And then, in a way, we're immune to the movement of love because it's lost its proximate cause. Love, real love, spiritual love, or whatever you want to call it, you might see the word metta a lot at the center in this tradition, that word for that basic goodness or that basic goodwill of the heart, friendliness of the heart, loving kindness. Karuna is compassion. Upeka is equanimity. Mudita is appreciative joy. So these four ways that love moves, four tones of that love, four colors of that love, that movement of love. And it's, it's really, I think, liberating not to think of it as something you have to do because it just makes another neurotic burden. Now you're telling me I have to be loving. I don't feel loving. I don't feel compassionate. I don't feel like being forgiving. I don't feel like being generous or grateful or appreciative, you know? But in the next moment, we can drop the drama and notice, oh, so this is what that feels like. Right? We can just be intimate with that feeling, be with that feeling. This is what it feels like to be upset, to feel that the world isn't taking care of me. Oh, honey, this is how that feels. Right? And then what starts to move? Self-compassion. Just that willingness and the, the interesting thing, maybe you get a sense from how I just said that, it's never far away. The story may tell us, you know, the story, the narration in our mind, it may tell us that love, some authentic expression of love or kindness, compassion, like I'm, I'm so neurotic, I'm so angry, I'm so whatever, that I'm miles away from really being a loving human being. But all it takes is a moment of being vulnerable to what it feels like to be closed off, if that's what's happening in that moment. Just that willingness, I see this all the time with my 
my partner, Wynn Fricke, the co-founder of Common Ground, one of our teachers here. And we've been married for a long time now. And uh, she's a longtime practitioner, a real wise person. And, you know, just because we're forces of nature, we can get in it, get at it, fight, you know, argue like nature does when nature exists as two human beings living in an intimate relationship, right? And so what's really interested, they're interesting rather, is how in the thick of it, you know, when the feelings and the, the stories are really seductive, seem true, right? We realize that real wisdom and compassion isn't far away. It's like, in once I'm really no time difference, totally identified with the drama, and then the next mind moment, totally intimate with what it feels like to be a human being caught in the drama. See, that's different. One is a moment of delusion, being the drama. The next moment, with no time separation, I mean, it's literally the next moment, the mind realizing it feels like this to be upset, or it feels like this to be judging, it feels like this to be closing down, to be self-righteous, or whatever. It feels like this, and then something else begins to move. All it took was a moment of emptiness. Now, it's provocative to call it a moment of emptiness because it feels like it should be something. But emptiness means that instead of being the drama that the habit-based mind is generating, it's a moment of being aware there is this drama, being with it, being with what it feels like. Oh, it feels like this. And when the heart is willing to be touched, willing to let life in, then, see, it never energy never stops. I mean, I know there's somewhere in physics, some of you might know this, there's this law, right, that energy, it may be transformed, it may be converted, but it just isn't just, there's a lot of energy and it stops. Energy always becomes the next thing. So when the heart lets in life as it is, the feeling as it is, what's being thought, what's being seen as it is, then it just keeps moving, right? And the movement is now love. It gets like an alchemy. It gets transformed into love because wisdom allowed it in. It's not like something is there, like the wise mark is there. It's what's not there, right? It's the abandoning of the identification or the abandoning of the attachment and it's replaced with a willingness to be real, a willingness to be with, a willingness to be touched, a willingness to be vulnerable, a willingness to not know. Because when we go from the mind being identified with its thoughts, see the reason that's so juicy and seductive is it feels like I have ground my identification with the thoughts, my story, makes the sense of me seem real, on solid ground. But when I open to that vulnerable place of being touched, being with, feeling what's there to feel, then there's no conceptual ground because the mind can't do both of those things in the same moment. can't be identified with thought and open. So when a moment of being open, we lose ground. 
we lose the ground of me and mine and you, you know, this. And so we can't be at war because war depends on me on my ground and you on your ground. Same with lust and desire. All of that falls away. And something is born in that empty, open space. It's nature, and it's a beautiful aspect of nature that we call love and compassion. Robert Thurman, some of you know, he's a... (laughs) The trivial fact is he's the father of Irma Thurman, who's a well-known actress, but he's also a well-known Buddhist scholar at Columbia. And he was one of the earliest Westerners to ordain as a monk with um, the Dalai Lama back, I think in the maybe 64, 63, someplace early on. He didn't stay very long as a monk, um, but in any case. And he has this great little, you could call it um, thought experiment. And he uses, he's in New York City, so he uses the New York subway. Some of you have heard me say this. I really like this image of, if you've ever been either in New York or some other major metropolitan area where, you know, every expression of humanity is there in close proximity. And then when you get in a, you know, deep in the ground, and then besides being deep in the ground, in a metal car, deep in the ground, crowded in, very little space, you know, and you know generally how long it is before you're stopped. And you have, just think about all the strategies you have to keep yourself safe. You know, imagined, your imagined safety, like just gazing down to the floor, sort of how you send out, like, this is my space, don't, don't you dare, you know. And, you know, for some people it's six inches, some people it's more and just to know how we like where we put our bag and all that kind of thing. Hand on the wallet, on the cell phone, I mean whatever the mind does in those sort of places. And then he he says, now imagine at some point you realize you're going to be in that very crowded subway car where you don't know anybody. I mean this is the thing about large metropolitan areas. The odds of you actually recognizing somebody are pretty small. Right, so everybody, you don't know who the heck they are. And now you're going to be there forever. <laughs> All eternity, never to leave. Right, so it's a different, like that strategy of being in the frames, the ideas I have about these people, at some point become too much of a burden. We need a different strategy. And it's, it's not so different than the kind of confinement of living with greed, anger, and delusion, you know, the main motivations that drive the thinking in the mind. It's like that crowded, intense, scary place in the subway. Or, you know, there are any ways, any number of ways to describe it. And at some point, it just makes sense to experiment putting down that load. Now, we generally learn that in a safe place. We come to a relatively beautiful place. I know this space isn't as safe for everyone, but we try, we're trying to make this a safe space more and more for anyone who's interested. 
But you can at home and in your own ways with your own group of friends create a safe space where you can put down the defenses, the greed, the anger and delusion, and you can practice being wide open, feeling the body as it actually is, noticing the movement of emotion and thought as it actually is, not needing to put the brakes, not saying yes or no to anything. Just let the nature of this mind and body, what's inside, what's outside, just let the nature move. So you're really practicing exposure, vulnerability, being open, being with, right? That's different than some meditation techniques that are about seclusion, like going into some little sacred place. Sometimes when I was doing more formal concentration practice and I'd be getting into a very quiet, peaceful place, I, I call it, you know, not so much in the moment, of course, but it's like the heart cave. Because it really felt like this deep, safe, deeply peaceful, quiet place, unshakable, where no danger could come in. And that's how it felt. But then I had to be a human being again, right? That sit only lasts as long as it lasts. And then there are the complicated relationships and the stickiness of our culture and all of the injustices that we're part of complicit to economic injustice, racial injustice, sexism, all the ways that we're harming part of the harm, you know, the agricultural industry, the way we treat animals. I mean, it just doesn't end the, the way that we're all complicit in the suffering. And it makes sense, like when we, like even now, just opening those doors, it makes sense why we don't want to be sensitive to it. Like, what do I do with all that? It's like, I don't want to know that. I want to laugh at stupid stuff. I want to watch a cat video, you know, or maybe you have your own actual cat. <laughs> and I don't want to know about all the birds that it kills, right? Or what, what, I had to, what had to happen for there to be cat food, right? Or what happens to all the litter with the poop in it? Where does that go, by the way? <laughs> It's like, I don't want to know about that. Or what happens to the plastic bags that we use? You know, where do they all go? And every once in a while, you know, we hear about these little eddies of plastic in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that are as big as Delaware or something like that. You know, it's like, I don't want to know that. I don't want to know what we're doing to the oceans. I don't want to see another video about police arresting someone of color. I just don't want to see it because I don't know where to put it, right? Because we're still operating on that place that I need some kind of meaning, some story that makes it all make sense. But the truth is we have to feel what it feels like to live in a world that's like this, where people are mean, where people are being harmed, where there's injustice, where little children don't get enough to eat. I mean, things that are really shocking. And I have money in my savings account, right? And yet, I'm sure if I spent a little time, I could find some place to send that money that would make a difference. So we live in this kind of world, and from the self-story point of view, 
we get paralyzed, which makes us more dependent on entertainment and distractions and renovating the kitchen and, you know, figuring out where we're going to go in the winter and, you know, where to shop. And, I mean, I'm part of this. I don't mean to make it sound like I've somehow figured it out, but I'm, I'm catching the scent that distraction doesn't work, you know, in the end. Because it's really about becoming more, it's a strategy of becoming numb. And I remember a teacher, I forget, it might have been Tony Packer, this wonderful teacher. She uh, taught at Springwater up in uh, New York State. She started out as a Zen practitioner, Zen teacher, and then she didn't like even that box. So she called herself an awareness teacher after a while. A really wonderful teacher. She has good books. You can find Tony Packer. And I think it was her who said that nobody consciously chooses to be numb. You know, nobody consciously, no human being, if they saw things clearly, would choose to be distracted, choose to be numb, choose to close down. We sort of fall into the habit, maybe in the same way people fall into, you know, addiction heroin or other really seductive drugs. You know, we, there's one step and there's another step and another step. And then at some point we get so addicted to not feeling that feeling anything seems scary. So we just keep doing what we've done because at least, even though we feel dead because we've been operating with the strategy of not paying attention, not being real, It's just too scary to try something new. So the formal practice is really systematically cultivating something new, sensitivity. We're cultivating being open, being undefended. That's why we sit in a safe place, to to develop some confidence that it's actually safe. Feeling, you know, sitting for a time, we actually feel like we can sit still for that time. So not longer than you can sit still, but for a time that is about right for your body at this time, in a quiet place, with the cell phone off, with the support of the people you live with, or here at a place like Common Ground, right? I said, well, can I be right in the middle of this swirl, this movement of body and mind, with whatever moves, whatever arises, can I be undefended? Can I learn a little bit more how to be open? Can I sustain that? And then we start feeling inspired. The faith comes in when we see what gets born in that emptiness, the wisdom and the compassion, basically. These two wings of our, two fruits and wings of our practice. This is the enlivening force. This is what a human being is when the human being isn't lost in neurotic activities of numbing out, fighting back, hitting back, getting greedy. When a human being is there right in the middle, then we care about everybody, including ourselves. A lot of times we don't want to go to that raw place because we think we'll neglect our needs. But that could only happen from a neurotic place where we would neglect our needs. Because in that place, 
the heart just responds naturally to whatever suffering, to whatever needs to be done. And if we need to take care of ourselves, that heart will take care of ourselves. What would be in the way? Only the idea that, oh, not me. Right? Well, that's a neurotic. That comes from a self point of view, neglecting or self-care. But we can't plan it. See, this is the thing. We don't know what that compassionate action is going to look like because it's just going to move. And that's scary, right? That's why we have to build up our trust, our confidence. We have to learn to give our life away. The limited life of self-centered activity We have to learn to give that away, to abandon that in order to discover something else. And we need to sort of be inspired by each other, like we see somebody else in a moment of living in that more free, loving way, and it kind of inspires us to do our work. And then maybe the next day, we're the person who, in a moment, for a few moments, is an inspiration for those around us. This is the power of community, you know, to really be inspiring each other. So maybe I'll leave it here. I'll just end with this quote. This is a really well-known quote from Martin Luther King. And I, he talks about it in terms of the intersection of power and love. But from a Buddhist point of view, the power comes from the wisdom of emptiness, the wisdom of understanding that the mind doesn't have to be dependent on self-centered activity, self-centered drama, right? And that, that really allows for a lot of power. You could call it the power of fearlessness, the movement, right? Because what this is, this life, this body-mind, it's nature. When the nature is contained or caught in self-protection, self-fear, self-greed, then it's limited. When, the, when that's abandoned, right? it's just this being known, when the heart's intimate, then it's really freed up. And that's a real power. So here's what he wrote or spoke a long time ago, Martin Luther King. Power is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with resignation of power, with a resignation of power, and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love, correcting everything that stands in the way of love. So we have about eight minutes, ten minutes or so. It'd be nice to hear from a few people, your own reflections from your life, what you've learned. Yeah, Robin, please. 
something that I've been dealing with uh, recently is kind of what you brought up. Is there ever a wise moment to actually examine some of the self-centered drama, especially when you're noticing you're acting out of um, habit behavior? And uh, the clearest example that I can think of um, is uh, partners. Partners is always bringing out the worst in you. Um, sometimes the best, but <laughs> but the worst too. Um, the the feeling of when my partner doesn't if we don't talk for a day the feelings of a fear of abandonment of rejection all those things and feeling just trying to do the wisdom of just feeling it feels shitty but i'm feeling it and i'm working with it um but then the the immediate kind of habit energy to figure out why and that's where the story comes into like, where is this coming from? Is this mama issues? Is this daddy issues? All right, where is, is this when my cat ran away? Like trying to figure out what is specifically or what conditions and events help to contribute to these immediate kind of habit responses. Um, but then, of course, that just creates more neurotic behavior. But something that I am wrestling with is when is it? when is it wise to do some examination of the those dramas where yeah i i want to know if if there are certain dynamics in romantic partners or even platonic relationships where i'm really close with people and if there's things that they do that automatically trigger something even subconsciously it's not out of a place of malice um i know that there is a reason like it, it's not just feeling it, but I also know that there are some specific things that I might need to work through in my practice that has kind of cultivated that habit energy. So that, yeah, basically when is it appropriate to do some, some wise examination of those sub dramas when you have that habit energy arise? Yeah, no, that's a great comment, Robin. And I think it's, it's really and the Buddha really taught this way, which I have always really appreciated, where he offered an array of skillful means. And it's kind of like, because what this is, this human life, this body-mind thing that we call me, what it is, it's not just like one thing. Yeah, this is who I am. They're just these different natural processes or forces or patterns that we call Robin or we call Mark. And so we need an array of skillful means that are addressing the whole ecosystem that we call me. It's because it's not one thing. And some of those strategies or interventions are going to be at a more sort of therapeutic level or on the level of the kind of stories, like healing the stories we tell ourselves about what's going on. Some of those strategies are going to be on a more refined or subtle level, like what is the underlying view in the mind, you know, self-centered or seeing things as nature? Can I feel it as sort of in between? So there's like all these different levels at a kind of a more external or gross, not gross in a bad way, but just more on the surface of things. But again, not to be dismissive of the surface of things, right? That's real. <laughs> and we have to address it at that frequency, if we try to bring a really refined practice to a level of our life that's gross, it's not going to work. Like you see this in Buddhist circles, like 
somebody playing the emptiness card. You know, this is, I don't know why, but it seems more typical for men to do this in relationship. You know, men who have practiced Buddhism, and it's like, well, it's all empty. You know, we're in relationship. Yeah, get a grip. It's all empty, you know, (laughs) or something like that. And probably what would be a good intervention for that person is to live alone for a while. (laughs) So they get in touch with something real, like the real feeling of being lonely and needing other human contact, right? And then they might, you know, be a little wiser in that interaction. So we need different interventions, not just one. And so part of what allows us to do the grosser work of like, you know what, I'm starting to recognize this kind of pattern, and if I make this, if I refrain from that way of responding or bring this other way in, speak up instead of not speaking up, then that might change the dynamic. But part of what allows the mind to be creative on that level of like what I say, what I do, or on a more subtle level, what kind of thoughts I repeat in my mind, is having moments of relative emptiness. Because it's really hard to look at the dynamic, even really gross dynamics like family dynamics or cultural dynamics like racism you know, or other kinds of patterns of injustice that exist, when we're completely enmeshed and oppressed by that pattern. Because we don't see clearly. We're just hurting too much. So part of doing the practice first Initially, it might be that just turning away from it, like getting some distance. I'm just going to hang out with these people for a while in order to get some space around what's going on between the two of us, right? Or I'm going to go on a Buddhist meditation retreat. Or any way we can turn away. Or I'm just going to go swimming, you know, or I'm going to take a walk. Because then it's like it's an intervention just to put down the drama. And then having put it down for a few minutes... Then when it naturally reemerges, because it has momentum, so it shows up in the heart and mind again, we feel it, we remember it, but now we're looking at it with a little bit more freshness. So the mind will be a little bit more nimble in terms of seeing, like you were saying, Robin, the causes and conditions, like how does this repeat? How does this pattern get reinforced? What is my part of feeding it? What is this other person's part of feeding it? It's like, how can we bring in a fresh look? Now, the, the best way is to be completely enlightened, right? Where the mind isn't confused by any self-centered mental constructions. But we don't get that very often. But we can do some strategic things, like go to the bathroom just to break the conversation and stay in there for 10 minutes, you know, and take some breaths, you know, or wash the face or do something that we can absorb into so we put it down for a little bit. And even before we go out of the room, we bring it to mind. But now we have a little bit more safety because we're 25 feet away from the person. And then we can, you know, just in the imagination, imagine being in relationship in a different way, right? So any way we bring in space, ultimately we want to have wisdom that's not confused by our neurotic thoughts. It's too much to imagine we're going to be a human being without neurotic thoughts. 
But it's not too much to imagine we can be a human being who's not so confused by our neurotic thoughts. Oh, that's just that thought, and it feels like this. That's just like you mentioned a few of the classic ones, like not feeling recognized, not being appreciated, feeling abandoned. I mean, we have all of these issues because none of us had perfect parents, and some of us had really bad parents, you know, where that abandonment is a very deep feeling and, you know, established deep in the heart. And so anything can bring up that fear of being alone, not being taken care of. And so we have to be, we have to sort of work with the wounds that are here. And the, the best way is to find ways to have some space so when we look back at it, we can see it in its movement as a natural thing, a natural system. Because then our intervention will be more skillful, both at the grosser level and the more subtle level. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Robin. And we need to leave it here. It's 8.30. So just take a few moments, let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths together. Appreciating the tender, raw, open heart. And not being afraid to feel. Sensing the other people here and all of our spiritual ancestors, other human beings who had complicated, challenging lives. In one way or another, found a way to become wise, to let that compassion move. And so they shared what they had learned. And that way, one generation at a time, these teachings, the wisdom and compassion gets passed along. So like it or not, it's our turn now. It's our turn to become a little wiser more naturally compassionate and become part of the causes for peace, for justice, for happiness. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.